0: Thank you for listening to The Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian, Colin Sheehan.
1: All right, everybody. The Silver Club Podcast is back after a short little hiatus. We've been busy running around the country, setting up events. I've been traveling like uh more than the airlines have, Colin, great to chat with you again.
0: Hey, Steve. How's everything man?
1: you good? life is life is pretty good. Uh, you know the I think the craziest thing is hopping on these airplanes, wearing the mask all day and doing all that, and I, I'm getting used to it. I gotta say I've been uh, let's see in the last month, I've been in Chicago, I've been to Dallas, uh, just came back from prairie Dunes from an epic. A major event we called the Kansas Clash. We had some really great play by our players there and Martin Golobik, brand new member this year, hopped on and uh, shot. It, w- it was so windy the first day, Colin. I mean, Prairie Dunes, obviously the middle of Kansas and it gets uh, it gets really blowing out there. First day it was blowing 20 to 25 easy. The average score we had was was really high, it was in the mid 80s to be honest with you. And then Martin Golobic comes in and shoots 67 the second day and uh, fired the lowest round ever uh, in our Silver Club existence. So uh, he ended up winning the medal and uh, he's from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, plays out of Cedar Rapids Country Club. And yeah, just a, a fun time. We had a great group there and some epic weather overall.
0: I was enjoying it vicariously on uh, your social media. And, uh, you know, the thing to me about Prairie Dunes is like long before Mike Kaiser kind of made it more more famous to sort of seek out the sort of remote sandy ground in America. Uh, the Tufts family sort of essentially did that in Pinehurst. Uh, which had to be just a remote place at the time and then tip of the cap to the to the members of the prairie dunes country club and in Hutchinson that just identify just great essentially inland links dunes and it it couldn't be a more perfect ground for golf. It's as close to the sort of Scottish and UK coastline as it, as it almost gets anywhere right?
1: It's a great piece of property and it's about an hour northwest of Wichita and and it, it was it was awesome. I mean it was a uh, Perry Maxwell laid out the first nine holes there and then he passed on and then his son press came back and finished the golf course and actually last week uh, overall was well, we'll just call it Perry Maxwell week. We played at the Old Town Club. A couple days before, I went to uh, went to Prairie Dunes. So we had a, a pretty sweet week as far as golf course architecture goes. Old Town is another magnificent uh, venue. I know that you are pretty fond of Old Town. Your Yale team has played there in the past.
0: I love that place. You know, I've gone on and on about it. But uh, something so, I love, uh, it, it, it passes the first test in my mind of a great course. It has to have terrain. I know uh, I want to shout out Gabriel Ruiz, my player. We're always debating courses. And and I'd say, well, the terrain at this golf course is just better than the other. And, and I, I, that's the essential ingredient. Elevation, undulation, the combination of the two, if you can get it. Um, and that's what I feel like just the sweep of Old Town is just stunning. It tells you everything you need to know from the time you get from the first tee to the first green. Just that down and up right there is like – Get ready. <laughs> You're in for a ride.
1: Yeah, and the first hole at Prairie Dunes is no slouch either. 445 from the back, sweeps around the dune uh, with the tall, wispy fescue on the left. You can't cut anything off. Uh, it looks like you want to, but you can't. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think Perry Maxwell, the Maxwell philosophy was kind of get your attention right off the bat and uh, tell, you, tell you what the golf course is going to be kind of in one hole. I, I think that was a, it was special.
0: How, um, what was your opinion of the, uh, the players flighting it and, and, and sort of working in the wind out there Were the uh, silver club, uh, you know, participants f- representing swinging, uh, s- swinging sort of three quarter shots, punch shots, low things on the ground.
1: There's a few. We have, we have one member who is uh, leading our championship points list right now, actually, Andrew Ganey, he hits this low little missile. I mean, it probably gets about thirty feet off the ground, and it's perfect for. I mean, that's just his normal shot, but he's he's an excellent player. So yeah, we've we've had a few that uh, like to dial that in for sure. But you know, we we have a, a nice competition out there. That's a camaraderie infused competition, really. We we have a, just a, a ton of fun, and it's not this kind of nose to the grindstone thing. Well, everybody's not talking to everybody. And I think that's the coolest thing about about what I've seen at our events and, you know, from Trinity Forest all the way through Prairie Dunes now. And we we just have a lot of fun camaraderie that, uh, you know, it's not like playing with Nick Faldo in his prime or something, you know?
0: Yeah, I think uh, everyone is just so grateful, right? Grateful to be competing, playing this great course. Probably, they're probably more competing against themselves than, than they are the field. Just trying to post, a, see if they can post a, a a quality round. I think that's really. And if it happens to be the lowest or the fourth lowest, it doesn't almost matter. Uh, if you're if you're pleased, I always you always kind of know as a golfer when you're pleased with your own round, whether it's a 68 or a 77. You know, just in the in the context. You know the thing about wind. Going back to that, which I love how the combination of it being wide open, or you know, wind swept and linksy out there, is no matter where you're playing in the wind, there really still isn't a solution, a, an equipment solution to how to hit a shot. You know, in a really hard headwind or strong crosswind, like. Yes. Still, you have, there's still the, the windier it gets, the more the skill is, is required. The actual skill of ball striking and swinging with tempo. And I really love watching, you know, it's, I always have the first years, the freshmen always come in and they always, you know, they're always already pretty long hitters and they want to impress their teammates. And then I love how they go through that kind of evolution where, actually it's expanding the repertoire, you know, like yeah it's like how many, how many different types of shots can you hit under the circumstances? How frequently do you not hit a full shot? How rarely. Uh you know um to me that's that's I love playing with a golfer who almost never hits a full shot. That's you know you're playing with someone really good who's who turns it into the wind, who cuts it into the wind, who and then and then every once in a while, downwind they might just absolutely hoist a you know yeah. <laughs> nuke a seven iron from to you know if it's called for. But in general, I mean, what? How about yourself? Like, what did you really? Were you as a as a young kid growing up, teenager? As you got better, what type of? How much emphasis were you putting on just sort of the idea of of flighting it, shaping it? Is that something that you were conscious of? Yeah,
1: for sure. I think you know, when I was growing up, though, the ball curved a heck of a lot more than it does now. And so the I think there was even more skill involved back then, to be honest, than there is now as far as that shape. But I, I basically hit one shot shape. I hit it right to left. I hit this kind of low trap draw, put the ball back in my stance and just kind of uh, growing up in South Florida and you play in the winters there. It gets a little windy, so you learn how to. You learn how to rifle that ball low, and I wasn't never a super long hitter, but I maximized what I had with that powerful draw. So, it uh, that that was kind of my shot shape. Uh, it still kind of is. I, my ball doesn't go left to right very easily, so I'm kind of a into out swinger. So uh, that that ball likes to likes to curve a lot. You know, talking about somebody though who you talked about power, you talked about tempo, or maybe lack thereof. We haven't chatted really since the U.S. Open. I've got to get your take on Bryson and what he did there.
0: Okay, a couple things. One, you can't you can't hate the player. You got you, you got to hate the game. He, <laughs> as long as he's if he's abiding by the rules, everyone else, you know, it, the the Rory can't really doesn't have much legitimacy in which to complain about somebody bombing the, the the golf ball. To me, Bryson won a US Amateur, he won an NCAA championship. He's a he's a major champion. He Like, I don't – he is not the longest guy in the field. Cam Champ and others hit the ball every bit as far as he does, but he got the ball in the hole. And that final round, to be in the last pairing on Sunday, have that 67, win by six, the only person under par is six under par, that is an incredible achievement. That's an all-time, like, great win. Um, You know – Completely. Could he help himself – should he just sort of listen to maybe a – a Crash Davis uh, style kind of um, give, have someone give him advice on how to talk to the media and maybe say, like, you know try not to be so controversial every, every answer. Yeah.
1: But he likes to stick his foot in his mouth a little bit. The,
0: the kid is a great golfer. He, he's doing it his way. There's nothing, there's nothing against the, any of the rules. I, although I will say the one thing, Steve, I, I would talk to you about in this. I know you sort of um, we've talked about this, I know that the, the Kuchar and Bryson DeChambeau form a you know technique of anchoring the putter to their forearm. Mm-hmm. the 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 end of the club is technically swinging freely, but it's I, I wouldn't want there to be a reaction specifically to Bryson. But I've never felt like the idea of anchoring the putter up the arm is in this is is in the spirit of the game. Now it's obviously. Pre- Presently permitted.
1: Yeah, I, I'd be I'd be in a lot of trouble though if that happened. The way I grip it, because uh, I, I do the same thing, kind of, but I have a kind of a inverted clamping style. The way I do it, I like to call it the gator clamp. But uh, yeah, I, I hope they don't do that. But you know what, I, I got to figure out that. You know they might, maybe they'll do something with distance before they do something again with putting. Um, but what he has done, you're right, is it's it's nothing short of phenomenal as far as uh, the speeds that he's generating. I mean, I watched him at the uh, Shriners for Hospitals Children Open in Vegas this last weekend, driving 373 yard par fours and holing 20 footers for eagle. I mean, he had six eagle putts on the first day. Uh, which is pretty remarkable, but I think you're going to see other players follow suit. I've seen some things on social media with Rory McElroy, who's, he's get his ball speeds are in the low 190s when he likes to, uh, crank it. So I'd be really interested to see how the other players react to what he's doing. I, that's, that's what I'm most interested in really this next month or two to see how these guys are, are, are training themselves because if they don't catch up to Bryson in that realm, then they're, they're going to be left in the dust.
0: Listen, he, uh, one thing he did and I, I, I have to tip my cap too, is that he's, he, he, he used the Trackman data to study the effects of the flyers from the rough and, and, any, everyone should have already done that. I mean, we all, we all get a flyer. We're in the rough. It's, it's very difficult to judge. It's one of the moments where it's sort of the art of the game is alive and well, you don't know how you're, how, how to read it always. And for him to sort of put some empirical data on how the, how hitting out of the rough with an eight, nine and pitching wedge affected the spin rate and thus the flight of the ball and that he had sort of a little more information than, than those in the, in the field about, what he could reliably expect to fly and carry the ball that's give it to him give, give him credit <laughs> for that you know I know uh, he's Guys, got all data they're all data driven all the college kids are everyone's they're all data driven on stats and everything else they know their they know their numbers that's yet another thing that should have should be a known sort of known as best you can um, and give it to him I I don't. I. I can't. Uh, I compliment him on that.
1: The way I look at Bryson in the historical context of golf, and you chime in here being the our resident historian, but my historical perspective on it, ever since 1960, and you could probably even go back further, but uh, the the every 20 years you get a player that's a transformational type of player 1960 you know really was the era of you know Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicklaus right in there and then 1980 was Seve Ballesteros came on the scene and it had that uh that great flair for getting up and down from the parking lot and then the year 2000 obviously we had Tiger Woods at the turn of the millennium just blister the field at the US Open and really turn the golf world on its head and then you have in 2020 now we have Bryson so uh every 20 years we're seeing some players gather all that information from the previous players and then they're just they're utilizing it I mean it's it's pretty remarkable what he's doing
0: yeah he's first of all he's driving up uh interest you know he's he's great for headlines he's making I mean who is not I mean, am My daughter's counting down the days to Christmas. I'm counting down the days to the first round of the Masters. I mean, <laughs> how about that? I mean, what he's gonna he's gonna try to drive the third green, and it's gonna be such compelling, compelling drama to see what he's what he's gonna even look like by then. This driver that he might unveil a
1: forty eight inch driver. They're saying that he might. Yep.
0: It's crazy. Now listen, he's he's only taking it. He's only taking advantage of what you know the the, the sort of governing bodies the game have allowed to happen um, you know this is where it's this is where we've come like the ball doesn't spin as you say yep. driver driver heads are super engineered shafts are paired perfectly I mean these guys know everything I by the way I find it fascinating that he has more loft in his putter than he does in his driver I mean yes. and, and, then, and then you know for the and, the and the length of his six iron length of all his irons and And the, and the grips. And the one thing you have to give him is how unorthodox he is and how he's making it work. And it's, it's kind of amazing. I'm trying to think Steve of like the, you know, not since Lee Trevino has someone been this unorthodox relative to the sort of field and be it sort of playing at the number one position in the world. Yeah, Um, yeah,
1: true. I, I think that he does it his own way for sure. And it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely not orthodox, but, but man, I mean, he's found a way to dominate every part of the game. And, you know, I think the, the next part, and I've got this from some pretty good knowledge, he'll, he'll be unveiling some new wedges that are actually going to be not the six iron length wedges. He's going to get some, uh, kind of quote unquote standard length wedges, which I think will help a lot in his, uh, distance control with those and, but man, I mean, that's pretty much all he's going to have, right? Driver wedge, yeah. driver wedge, putter, and when you're the best putter in the field, which he's been so many times, I mean, you can't overlook that either. I mean, he's I he's, agree. he's he gets just
0: the, right. He, anyone can hit it. Actually, there's plenty of guys kind of in his in his echelon of distance, but he gets the ball in the hole. If it he was... misses on the right sides, he's he's smart. He's probably smarter than any you know just about any other player in the field with his leaves.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, if if it was all about distance, Cameron Champ would win every other event too. So, and he's not. I mean, he's not winning as much as he should. So, uh, with the distance that he has, so it, it isn't all about distance. But yeah, it's if you don't fly three hundred yards anymore, I mean, that's you're going to be left in the dust. So,
0: I do think that you're right. What's happening is there's almost an undeniable converse. It, the um, the conversation the USGA, the RNA, they, they can't pretend that distance has run amok, right? It, this, the players, like the, for the first time ever, when, when sort of the Matthew Fitzpatricks of the world are calling out their fellow tour players, it's kind of reached a point where it can't be swept under the rug anymore. It's, it's, it, and then I think we're about to see it. I mean, we're, I, this, to me, what's, about the Masters coming up more than almost any narrative will be like, how is the course going? Forget like what Bryson is going to do to the course. What it's what is going to happen to the course? Um, yeah, you know, like is do half of these holes not even make sense anymore? When he turns it over on two and flies at the certain distance and then gets the eighty yards like of of sort of speed slot release, what have we? You know, are we? They're going to have to. They're gonna have to move. They're already, they already own the the old neighborhood. I guess they can knock down the wall and move, move another hundred yards back. I I don't know. I
1: do you think they'd ever go to their own golf ball for that event for the Masters? A one ball sort of rule.
0: They should have done that in 1998. Hmm. Um, I think yes, they will do it sooner than later. I mean, I I know that it made it made the Augusta Country Club. rather wealthy neighbor to uh to uh, to the to the national south there but how at some point what's the where do you where do we stop it yeah. has they, they, in the air where there's te- there's theoretically was a cap on death di- distance like uh, some you know, 10 years ago how does anyone think we're hitting it the same distance we were 10 years ago? No,
1: never. Not even close. Not even close. Well, well, look, very interesting topic. We'll have to keep going on it, but we're going to get to our podcast this week, and we've got the guy who is one of the kings of the cocktail circuit, Michael Muir from Washington, D.C., great player, actually used to play professionally, took some time off and got his amateur status back, and what a great guy. He's got some fantastic stories. That you're not going to want to miss and uh, look forward to chatting with you more, Colin, as we get closer to master's time and have another fun talk real soon. Thanks, Steve. All right, Colin. But before we get to this great podcast, I just wanted to share a few things about our recent events on the Silver Club Golfing Society schedule We were at Trinity Forest not too long ago. We were at the Inverness Club and played a great 10-on-10 match versus Inverness Club members. We also had a great one-day event at the Old Town Club, Perry Maxwell Gem. And then we moved on to Prairie Dunes, which is another Maxwell gem. Both Perry and Press built that one out in the middle of Kansas. What a spectacular venue that was. We just travel all around the country playing world-class golf courses, and I just can't thank our members enough for taking the time to visit with us and play some of these great golf courses and share in the camaraderie of this game that we all love. Big shout-out to Andrew Ganey, who is at the top of our championship points list right now. Andrew's from St. Louis, Missouri, and has played in a few of our events and done very, very well. And in our Scotch division, which is the fancy name for the net division, Jay Rohella from New Jersey, is leading the charge there. We have a few events left. We've got the Colorado One Day coming up tomorrow. That will be very special. We'll be out at Colorado Golf Club. So stay tuned to our Instagram and Twitter feeds for all the great pictures from Colorado Golf Club. Then we'll move on to Atlanta. The Atlanta Country Club will be hosting a one day in the first week of November, just before the Masters. And then immediately following the Masters, we are going to have our Silver Club Championship at Mid Pines and Pine Needles. Two great venues in the heart of North Carolina, right in the Sandhills. Fantastic venues there. And Kelly Miller will be our host there. He is the president of both venues. And and it's just going to be a great time To close out our season but our season won't be done we're actually going to have a wraparound sort of season that will kick off again december 8th and 9th at the country club of orlando in orlando florida we're gonna have to start moving south it's getting cold up north but uh, we're gonna play a nice four ball event there so anyway reach out to us if you have any questions contact at silverclubgs.com and we'll be sure to get right back to you or hit us up through social media On our DMs, we'll be happy to chat with you and share a lot of great information. And you have to go to our website, silverclubgs.com. So there's lots of ways to follow what the Silver Club Golfing Society is doing. I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our sponsors of the Silver Club. The Dunhill brand, Torch Eyewear, the Winston Collection, Turtleson, and the Leith Silver Company. Sponsors of our Silver Club Championship at Mid Pines and Pine Needles in November. Thanks to everybody for everything that they've done in support of our ever-growing society. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to this very podcast so you don't miss an episode. We've had some wonderful guests over time from great teachers like Bob Toskey or Bob Ford or Boyd Summerhays to the characters and great players in the game like Vinny Giles or Jason Gore. We connect you with the fabric of this great game that we all love. And we've got another one right now on your doorstep with king of the cocktail circuit, Michael Muir. Please enjoy this great podcast. He's got some awesome stories you're not going to want to miss. All right, we got a great day on the Silver Club podcast. Mr. Michael Muir, the man that has been great at the cocktail circuit, formerly a professional, reinstated amateur, but man, can you play, Michael Muir from Washington D.C. Welcome to the Silver Club Podcast.
2: Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on this morning. Appreciate it.
1: No, it's <laughs> it's great. We've got uh, we 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 like to have our guests really uh, the people who are really tied into the game and the fabric of the game and have great stories to tell. So I'm sure you'll have a few. But uh, Michael Muir, you've won the Coleman at Seminole in 2018, uh, three time Crump Cup at pine valley champion 2008 2014 2019 you're in some a pretty esteemed company there with the likes of francis we met jay siegel uh even a former podcast guest of ours vinnie giles uh, what does it mean to be involved and be in the similar list as some of these great players at a place like pine valley
2: Uh, It's pretty special, you know, when you walk into those locker rooms to be immortalized on those boards, um, you know, your name's up on on those boards in gold in gold leaf print uh, for eternity. And, and, you know, so once I'm long gone, my name stays up there and and it's pretty neat. Those places are just,
0: uh, you know,
2: very, very special places. Um, It's a it's a pleasure and just a, a privilege, really, to be able to compete and play in those events and to actually have won. Each of them is is really an honor. And uh, it's, it's a, you know, two of my absolutely two of my highlights of my golfing life.
1: Yeah, for sure. The the, the cocktail circuit, if you will, it, it, you play some amazing venues. I mean, uh, we'll talk about your your professional career you had 20 plus years ago here in a moment. But I mean, the, the level of golf courses you play in these in these mid-amateur Events are amazing. I mean, for you know, uh, not to mention you know, Seminole Pine Valley, LA Country Club for the Thomas, the Anderson Four Ball at Wingfoot. Um, just, uh, uh, I mean, the level of course is really better than you you played as a professional, wouldn't you say?
2: Oh, without question, there's the the Travis at Garden City. There's the singles <laughs> matches at National Golf Links. So, you know, ironically, it's amazing the the PGA Tour plays. Believe it or not, very few great golf courses outside of the majors. I want to, I want to say my last year on tour was 2002 or 2003, and of the 27 events, I think 17 of them were on TPC golf courses. And, and look, they're, they're nice golf courses, but they're not classic, you know, top hundred golf courses. So a lot of tour players have never even played some of these golf courses. I, I'm I'm sure when they host the pro member at Seminole um, prior to ever having, having that event, a lot of those guys had never stepped foot on Seminole. So right, we are so fortunate as, <clears throat> as mid amateurs to be able to, 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 play some of these. And when I quit playing professional golf, frankly, I had not played a lot of them. And so it's, um, it's really, it's really special to be able to, to, you know, zip around the country and, and compete and, and, uh, have fun doing so at these places
1: yeah pine valley has that that aura though there's a there's an aura that really revolves around all these places but you, you think of a place like pine valley where maybe not everybody has had the chance to uh, walk through the gates obviously as a uh, they can come guests can uh, actually come and watch on a normal year and watch the crump cup in person and you've had you know a uh, galleries following you when you've captured those three titles but for those who haven't come through the gates at pine valley just paint a picture if you will of what going through those gates there means and and the the feelings really that go through your body when you when you're there and you're traveling around the course and
2: well it, it's so s- steeped in in this allure and privacy and uh behind the gates of pine valley and um you know it's kind of the polar opposite of a gust i would say um Augusta is this venue that's everybody has seen every single shot on TV and augusta and pine valley is again it's it's remained uh, behind the the fence so to speak um, but it's it's so much fun once you get in there it's it's really laid back and they really want everybody to have a great time and they do a great job of doing so uh, but they really maintain a great level of, of tradition but there's a funny story. Um, my very first Crump Cup. You mentioned they let everybody in on Sunday at one o'clock sharp. I mean, one o'clock. They line up. They open the gates at one o'clock. They bust everybody up, and for the final match of the Crump Cup, and it's really neat. They uh, the the president of the club announces the match on the first green. So I'm staying on the back of the first tee, and and I'm playing uh, this guy um, Brian Comline, and it was his first Crump, and he made it all the way to the final match, and we're we're getting ready to go. And they open the gates and all of a sudden about 2000 people line the fairway. I mean, it's literally like a tour event on Sunday. And he's, he says, what, what's going on? What, what are all these people doing here? And I start laughing. I'm like, what do you mean? There's gonna be like 5,000 people out here watching just you and I, He's like, what, what, what do you, mean? I mean, it was over for Brian, unfortunately for him that day. Cause he just was completely taken off guard and he, you know, soiled himself. I think on the back of the first <laughs> tee at that moment. And, uh, so it kind of worked to my favor but it, it's really a special place and it, it's great to have people mostly from the philly area but somebody came up to me last year in the final match he, he had driven up from uh i think from i think he said from north carolina to watch right watch our match it was pretty cool that's the you know that's just it, it just lends to the 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 type of you know tradition you know allure that the place holds you know
1: for sure the uh the Crump isn't going to be played this year, though. I mean, unfortunately, with all the world's goings on, uh, you've kind of lost uh, most of these great events that you've traditionally played in over the years. And I know you don't play, you certainly don't play as many tournaments as you're used to as a professional, but, you know, you're, you know there's four or five main ones that you're really involved in, like the Coleman or the the Crump. And, you know, that's that's got to be, you know, certainly disheartening to you and all the other players. It's really
2: tough for me because I'm I'm pretty well washed up at almost 49 years old and I'm kind of in my my twilight years and every year that goes by it's it's one you know really val- valuable year to me in terms of being still being you know fairly competitive um, I don't have many more of those years left at, at this level so it really um, it really hurts to not be able to play any of those we lost the crump the Coleman the, the thomas the mid-am um, the mid-am was going to be at, at kinlock where i was a member for a number of years and right here in virginia so i was looking forward to that but it is what it is and it life will, life will get back to normal but um frankly i just miss my friends i miss competing um you know my wife refers to me as america's guest i don't even have any, uh, any member guests to play in so i usually have a little you know a handful of those so it's been a tough year um but it's been also really good to spend more time playing with my kids and Um, That's that's been fun.
1: It's a good trade off. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, you'll you're just stocking up all your points to uh, with with the fam when uh, when the gates floodgates open, hopefully next year. But there is an event that's going to be played, though. We've we've read about this through the media in the last few months at Merido, uh, another great mid amateur player from North Carolina. Scott Harvey is involved with an event called the East West matches. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about uh, what might be included in there.
2: Yeah, I wish I knew more about it, but I was—I um, had the honor of being selected just in the last few days. Um, Scott Harvey and Kevin Marsh were instrumental in putting this together, and um, I think it's a great idea. It's going to be uh, hosted at Merado down in Dallas, and they've assembled you know, two really, really high-caliber um, teams of mid-am and senior players from the East versus the West, and um, I believe Tim Jackson and Paul Simpson are – are, uh, captains for the right. East and uh, Kevin Marsh and um, oh who's the, uh, the the West captain so it, it, it's a mm-hmm. it, it's a who's who of uh, right. uh, players Stu Hagestad's gonna play I believe and and Scott Harvey obviously and so it, it'll it'll be an honor to be part of that and hopefully it's a great tradition that they start uh, and and I'll be again privileged to be part of this uh, this event the first year
1: no doubt no doubt now the do you uh, you had a professional career back in the, in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s into the early 2000s. You graduated from Duke University. You know, like players like Joe Ogilvy, Adam Long. I mean, you've got to have a, a pretty good brain to go along with a pretty good golf game to go to Duke University. And you, you made it, you made it on to the, the PGA tour in the early 2000s. And give us an idea of what that experience is like. And cause you mentioned about playing at the, at the crump against comline in front of all these people, but you've played in front of a lot of people for a long time on the professional ranks 20 plus years ago.
2: Yeah, so I Look, I, I had a decent career. I finished in 94 and played, just gradually got a little better each year and played in Europe for a year and then four years on what was, then it was the nationwide. Every year, I think it had a different sponsor. It was a buy.com year, tour. It was the nationwide. It was the Nike tour and got a little better each year and, and eventually got through and got my card and played for about three years on the, on the tour. I kept my card my first year in 2001. And, um, and then I just, I, I had a health issue. I got stage four melanoma, which, which uh, you know, derailed my, my career as a professional golfer. And, and frankly, I was, I was a pretty good player, but I was not a great player. And, frank, and, and frankly, in today's game, there's no way I'd still be out there. I just was not a good – I was not a long hitter, and I was not willing to get caught in the gym. I, you know, If I was in the gym, I was lost. So um, it, it's a different game today. But I was a really good iron player. Um, I had some really good runs. I had the lead a couple times on Sunday and that didn't end particularly well at any of those times, but some great experiences. And, um, you know, I, I look back with a lot of fondness to those years. Um, even, even though it brought up some, you know, some raw moments of health wise and, and some struggles. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful time in my life. And, um, you know, it's as a kid, everybody wants to play professional golf and I made it to the Kind of the, the summit of the game, so to speak.
1: You made it to uh, the highest level for sure. And I remember yeah. we met way back when my when my uh, visits, my time in Gainesville, University of Florida, in the late '90s, and the the tour would come through there and play Gainesville Country Club. And you and your buddy Jeff Gove would uh, yeah. would come out, and uh, you know Gainesville was a nice little uh, town to hang out in at night too. So that was good. But um, yeah. but uh, yeah, for sure, the the level for those who. You know who have an experience like you. What do you see as the differences? I mean, maybe just from when you played, and maybe what you're observing now from the differences from the the what's now the Corn Ferry Tour to the PGA Tour. What's the what's the line that the players? What's that fine line that that you need to to do when you're on those you know the the you know the third level tour versus the top tour of the PGA Tour?
2: In terms of of, of- making the step from one to the next. Yeah. What's,
1: what's the, you know, mentally, physically, all the
2: above. It, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty ambiguous, um, kind of thing to to identify. You know, it's, I, I always said it, it's luck, frankly, a lot of it is luck and, and you do have to make some of your own luck. You have to put yourself in position to get those right bounces and, um, I mean, I saw a lot of guys come up, at, get to the finals of Q School, and literally have a bad break that kept them from getting their card, and we never saw them again. Hmm. And so there was a there was a fine line between making it and not making it, and you know, all American can't miss kids that um, that y- you figure, God, these guys are going to be on tour. The rest of their lives, and, and you never, they never even sniffed it.
1: I'm raising my um, hand right now. If you can't see through the zoom, I'm raising my hand. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in, right I'm in that, I'm in that boat myself for sure. I mean, the well, the, well,
2: the sure. I mean, what you took Tiger to the, you know, to the to the brink, and and who knows what your professional career might have looked like? It had had you, you know, toppled Tiger in that match, and and yep. who knows? I mean, it, it you just don't know, and. um, it's a, that was probably that, that might have been a pivot point in your professional uh, golfing career and whether it was mental or physical or financially, how it might have impacted your your, your ability to, to, you know, go play for three or four years and, hey. and whatever you, you, you could speak to that. What,
1: but, was, what was your pivot point, though? What was your what was the difference that got you to the PGA Tour?
2: I know exactly what it was. I was playing in the second stage of Q School at Greenleaf Resort. I don't even know if it's around still, at Greenleaf, but it was an awesome in, old
1: middle of Florida, Florida near Orlando. Was, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Haynes City, Florida, out in the middle of nowhere, and they used to play. They used to play finals there, but it was a great, great old long golf course. And I was in. I was playing for an alternate spot to get out of the second stage, which was meaningless. Really, nobody doesn't. Nobody gets into the finals as an alternate, and I was playing Jim McGovern for the spot. Now he is—he <laughs> had almost won the Masters prior to that. Right. The, uh, two tour events, and he—he he couldn't give a rat's, you know, what about this spot? But he showed up, and we go out and we play it, and I win the—I win the playoff. And at the time, I was—I was conditional on the Nike Tour. This is probably 1998, and I was ready to quit golf, um, but. I had finished top 25 in the last event of the year, the prior season. So I got into the next event. The first event of the year it was Pompano Beach, Florida, and I finished top 25. So I had, so that, that, getting that, uh, that conditional status, you know, that, that, uh, out of that second stage right. gave me conditional status on the, on the Nike tour at the time, which, which allowed me to, play the first couple events which allowed me to re-rank up it essentially allowed me to play the rest of that year and I ended up having a great year catapulted me up into the rankings the following year which got you know that year I finished 21st on the money list on the Nike tour I think it was the buy.com tour Um, and then so I, I again I was about to quit and if I didn't get that spot in that playoff I was done
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, and so it was
2: just a I, I look back at that and that was that was my pivot point and it wasn't anything I did in particular. It was just a it, it was just a lucky lucky decision to go out and you know play the playoff. You know, I think I was already three or four beers deep. When uh, when they said, "Yeah, you guys are in a playoffs for an ultimate
1: spot." Oh yeah, that, that's no, exa- Let's go, Jimmy. That's exactly what you wanted to hear. Oh man, yeah, that's uh, yeah. Maybe maybe that's the secret to golf. I don't know, but uh, so so fast forward a bit. So you 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 had your unfortunate uh, health scare, and uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that you know things are uh, going the right way for you, and you've been you know maintaining your competitive <laughs> nature, and and you've got a great family and whatnot, and. Uh but you you how how long did you have to wait in that period to get reinstated and then and then how did it feel to come back into the amateur scene and 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 play on on that side of the the ball again?
2: Yeah, so I, my last professional golf was in 2003 and it was pretty funny funny story. I was playing in the Callaway Invitational, which was a it's that hmm. event out of Pebble Beach, yeah. really fun November event. It's the same format as the ATT t Pebble and I was playing really well. I was in the final group. I was leading. I was playing with John Daly, Todd Fisher, and Bo Van Pelt. And I had like a three shot lead. And I said to John Daly, I said, Yeah, I'm quitting today when we're done today. And I'm I'm taking a job tomorrow. He says, What are you talking about? I said, Yeah, I'm 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 done golfing. He's like, Are you out of your mind? I said, No, no, I'm I'm done. He says, and then he ended up birding like six holes, <laughs> six of the last ten in one. And I said, That's why I'm quitting, because you know, I, I, that's not even in my bag. And um, so I, you know, I I I quit that day, and then I didn't play golf really for about four years. And in 2007, I was looking at the amateur schedule, and the amateur that year was at Olympic, and the mid-am was at Bandon Dunes. And I thought, man, I haven't I haven't played either of those golf courses. That sounds pretty good. So I wrote a letter to the USGA, and they asked me how long it had been since I played professionally. I told them four years. They said, all right, well, you're good to go. Oh, and. I would made a little money. I'd I'd finished seventh a couple times. I think was my best finish on the tour. Yeah. Um, and uh, so not enough to to, mm-hmm. you know, warrant an eight year uh, wait like Charles Warren just went through. But um,
1: yeah, right. So yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, uh, and and how did you feel? You walked onto the tee. Yeah, you, know, you played. You played in that U.S. Amateur or those at Band of Dunes or uh, or well, at the, the or at Xander, Olympics.
2: It, it, yeah, at Olympic, I played in the U.S. Amateur that year at Olympic in '07, and um, did,
1: did you, and, you feel know, like a and, big fish in a small pond at that point, or because I, you were I so sort of did. you were so out of com- competitive golf essentially at that point, maybe it was like you had to relearn it, maybe or
2: I sort of did. I thought, you know, I'm I'm a former tour player, and you know, these guys are all just kids and high school and college players, and I should dust these kids. And then, you know, by then they were hitting it pretty long. Um, the young kids were starting to hit it really long and they were way longer than I was. And again, I hadn't played in four years. So I think I missed, I jacked one out of bounds. I think on my second, to last hole, I missed play, missed match play by a shot, but it was fun. I, you know, I love playing the amateur. I've played maybe six or seven of them in the last 15, 12 years since I got my amateur status back, but it's too much for me. The, the golf courses are too much at this point. <laughs> um, but uh, I still love to, test myself because it truly is a, a an open setup the way they set them up they're right. long they're tough and um uh so it's it's fun to, it's fun to try to do it still but, you don't like uh, 500 yard par fours no i played the one at the country club in boston it, it was literally the back nine was four thousand yards it was a joke
1: um so at our silver club golfing society we've uh, started a new campaign recently called Shots That Matter. It's kind of, uh, our tagline. And you, what sort of shots that matter, shot that matter to you at one point? Like maybe is there like one shot in your life, whether it's amateur or pro, that, that really sticks out to you that you, you can't believe you hit or, or, or a great story? It could be even at a member guest event. I read something about, uh, somebody hit a putter off the tee and then you hit a great oh. shot in or de- what's what tell me tell us about a story
2: that's a pretty good one uh, i mean wh- the shot that's maybe most memorable to me was in 2001 it was the fifth event of the year la open uh final round and i was in maybe the third to last group and we got to number 10 a little drivable par four yeah and it was pouring rain. Nobody could even, nobody was even trying to drive the green. It was a two iron off the tee and then a, you know, hundred yard wedge shot and it was back. Right. And I hold it out. I literally one hopped it right in the cookie jar. And I got to the 11th green. I was playing with, um, Jeff Sluman and Brent Guyberger. And I got to the 11th tee. I'm under the umbrella. And I looked over and I was leading the tournament after making two there Wow. with, you know, with seven holes to play. And I, I literally, I mean, I I just folded up like a tent right there. Um, <laughs> I was a rookie. It was my first season. And, but that, that shot was, I'll never forget it. I, I still see it going in um, on the, on the bounce. And, um, and it obviously was pretty monumental in terms of timing and what it, what it meant put me in the lead. So that was pretty, pretty stellar, but, yeah, there, there's a classic story locally here in DC where I was playing in the in this member guest with a buddy of mine who who asked me to play with him. And Again, America's guest. I get invited to a bunch of these things around here, and this yeah. guy is a butcher. I mean, he he hadn't played golf really in 15 years. He was just getting back into it. Just joined this club, so he's like, oh, I'll bring I'll bring my gown. So so we go out and he he you know hacks it around for the five hole nine hole matches and gets it around. And I'm coaching him through this thing, and he he's a good athlete. So we get it around and. We just come up shy in our flight by like a point and we're sitting around at lunch and somebody says, well, you know, there's a wild card. The highest point getter uh, gets in who didn't win their flight and it's us. And so I say, well, what's the format? And they say, well, we're playing number 15. It's a par three. It's about 190 yards over all over junk. I mean, it's just like an Island green. There's yeah. crap everywhere. And, and the member has to hit first and we're up first because we're the wild card. Uh-oh. And so he's, you know, like he's been saying all day, what do you like, Mike? You like, you know, two hybrid or the three hybrid. I said, well, Heath, I like the putter. He says, what do you mean? I said, I like your putter. I said, put it right here. And then right over here, about two feet in front where there's no divots, put it to right there. He says, really? I said, yeah, trust me. So he doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't uh, challenge it at all. He puts it right there. He almost puts it into the rough actually. <laughs> and everybody starts laughing. I'm like, what the heck's this guy doing? And sure enough, the next seven guys get up, a couple of them hit it in the junk. One guy hits it in the trees, guy hits in a bunker. I think one guy might've hit on the green and and I got up there and I hit it to a foot for the six <laughs> and and you know all we had to do was make bogey to advance and we, we made three and it was fine we had, we won the we won the member guess
1: wow but you
2: know look if he had probably a 1 in 5 chance of keeping it out of the junk where we make 5 or 6 so it it takes a special guy to say okay yeah I'll, I'll hit my putter 2 feet. and he was that guy I mean he has you know he was a great sport about it. It was awesome. So that, that's a lot
1: of that's a great story. I mean, it, it really it really bridges the gap right there. That one story alone about the difference of the mindset of of somebody who has played at a high level like you versus a, a higher handicap and this course management. I mean, just course management, understanding that. I mean, how, how long did it take you to? learn course management? I mean, you were obviously, you're definitely a great junior player and got a scholarship to Duke, but was that just something that came naturally to you as course management?
2: I think so. That was probably one of my strengths. I, um, physically, I, I might not have been as gifted as some of the other players, uh, particularly the kids that were, you know, I was from New Jersey, so I didn't play year-round as the kids from Florida and Texas that played year-round and were just incredible ball strikers. I, I had to kind of maneuver my way around the golf course probably a little better than they did. So, yeah, I'd say that was probably, you know, one of my strengths had to, you know, get around the golf course, um, you know, never miss it short side and and just kind of know where to uh, know where not to miss it, you yeah. know, and, and uh, know where not not to make mistakes. Uh, I think that's, you know, I, I played in the amateur. At, I mentioned it, um, at, uh, in Boston at the country club. Right. I played with this kid who was sixteen at the time. And his mom was walking with us and he hit it so good. I mean, this kid was so good. He hit his three wood 30 yards by me, right down the middle. Pin would be tucked. He'd have a nine iron in, I'd have five iron in, I'd hit it to, you know, twenty feet left of the pole. He'd hit nine iron right at the fly. He'd land a foot from the hole, bounce into the back rough. he'd make bogey. He he probably shot one fifty-five, missed the cut by 12 shots. Yeah, His name was Will Zalatoris. <laughs> and I went over to his mom. I said, your son will play on the PGA tour. He is so good. He is so good. And he was so good. I mean, physically so good, but he was 16 years old. He went at every flag. Um, he hit the ball so straight and so pure, but he just didn't know how to manage his way around a really difficult golf course i mean he at a country club he'd shoot 65 every time but on a course like that he just wasn't prepared to you know to, to shoot 70 or 71 and, and accept that
1: well and that's uh, the yeah it's the same will salatoris that is number one on the points list right now on the corn ferry tour so uh he, he definitely learned his lessons for sure now you've played in a ton of pro-ams And outside of course management, and this is really because our our Silver Club Golfing Society is made up of competitive players, single digit to plus handicaps who, you know, they're listening to this podcast to try to get better. What sort of things does the high level amateur or tour player do that that the amateur doesn't outside of course management?
2: Um, The average amateur player takes way too much time over the ball. Too many practice swings, way too much time over the ball on the putting green. Um, the one thing I would say is when you're putting, take get behind the ball. Don't don't use the line on the ball. That's that's a total gimmick. I know tour players do it, but physically you cannot line up a, a one inch line from ten feet out and have it within a couple inches. Um, set up behind the ball. Look at your look down your line. Take a practice swing if you want while you're looking down your line. Get up to the ball and putt it. When you stand up next to a, you know, at your ball and you take a practice stroke, you know, six inches short, you know, before your ball and then step up behind your ball, it's a completely different line from where you were just taking a practice stroke. I mean, especially if it's a putt that breaks a foot from 10 feet, it's a completely different line than you were just taking a practice stroke from. So I think, I think amateurs, they, they tend to over prepare on a golf shot. Um, and so I would just say, get up and hit it, um, prepare on the driving range for, for good, you know, single digit amateurs prepare for prayer and practice like you're playing. Um, don't just get up there and pound balls. You know, every shot you're on the driving range, you know, try to simulate something on that you're trying to do on the golf course.
1: That's that's great advice Same thing on the
2: putting green, simulate a, yeah. a putt on the golf course. Don't just get up there and, and whack three balls in a row, you know, Put them all down and, and, and simulate something.
1: Well, that's some really sound advice. Uh, but look, you've been generous with your time. Before I let you go, Mike, uh, I I know I've read that you have you have three children and happily married for many years. Are your kids into the game, or have have what are what are your kids into?
2: They're they're into the game. Uh, I, they're, I'm trying to really get them more involved with it. Um, I've I've really stressed what how important the game has been to me and what it has provided me. Um, not just in, in the sense of, uh, enjoyment. Um, but it has provided just an incredible amount of access and, um, um, it just success in business. It's just been a integral part of everything for, for me. Um, and so what golf has been able, uh, has enabled me to do in life. It's just, I want them to be able to have that, and they're they're not quite there yet. The boys are thirteen and ten; they're they're into lacrosse and team sports, and they'll get there. Um, but uh, you know, they see me playing golf with professional athletes and hockey players and baseball players and the president of the United States and whoever it is, and and I tell them the only reason I'm playing with these guys is because I I'm good at it. Um, so. Uh, get good at it and you'll you'll get to play golf with these these people so
1: yeah that's that's cool i, I did read some uh you, you mentioned the donald trump i can't let you go by it before asking uh, i did read somewhere where you did uh, create a relationship with the donald way back uh you know 10 plus years ago how did that come about
2: yeah, that's a that's a cool thing, and I don't I don't talk politics too often, so I, I don't talk about it much. But um, he bought a golf course in Virginia where I was a member, and so he started playing golf ten years ago. And I will tell that story; it's a pretty good one. So he bought the club in March of '09. It was called Lowe's Island, uh, and he he, uh, he comes down to tell the members. Everybody comes you know comes to the club in the ballroom. He's going to tell us all what he's going to do with the club. And he, Says, who's the best golfer here? And somebody points to me. Where there's 500 people in the room. He says, I'm, I'm going to kick your butt. You know? Okay, whatever. And so a couple months later, he comes down for his first visit. And this is during the Apprentice. You know, he's the top of the entertainment world, and he comes down. And we're on the first tee. He says, All right, let's have a game. And he's the, the pro had gotten these two other guys, and he says, What's everybody's handicap? And this guy Pete says, I'm a two, and this guy Rose says, I'm an eleven. I said, Well, I'm a plus five. He looks at me, he says. In, in other, you know, other expressions, he says, "Screw you! Nobody's a plus five. I'll take the two. So, all right, well, whatever. And we're playing the blue tees. We're not playing it super long. And, and right. I start, I start out. I go birdie, 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 birdie. And I'm <laughs> six, riding with him six in a row. Okay. At which point he says, "I don't know who the f you are, but you're my partner now." I don't know. I don't. I'm getting rid of this guy, <laughs> Roe, or whatever his name is. He calls him Yo. <laughs> You're part. You're my partner now, and so we just became friends at that point on. And every time he'd come down, we'd play golf, and and we've ma- we've maintained that friendship. So um, it's been cool. fun, and we, we we play a lot, and and uh, so it's it's been a great it, it, great thing.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a great story. That's really funny. Uh, it's always funny to you know to to uh, show somebody up with your golf clubs, especially if it's a guy like Donald Trump. But uh, yeah,
2: you know, he he jokes. He used to joke about it. you know. I, he said, "I don't get you know." Nobody sneaks up on me. You snuck up on me pretty well on that one. He says, and then he call he called me a couple weeks later. Says, you know, Mike, you really are a plus five, but you know what? I'm a plus ten at real estate.
1: Click. <laughs> <laughs> yep that's that sounds just like just, pretty just pretty like working. yeah that's great that's great. Well, well look, uh, we're gonna let you go. I, I can't wait to uh, one, once we get this, all the uh, the great events at all these venues like Seminole and LA Country Club with the Colvin and the Thomas and all these great, we can't wait to see you back on the top of the leaderboard and see if you can't uh, you know, make a, make a nice run at, at continuing your success. Michael Muir, thank you so much for your time here on the Silver Club podcast and uh, come back and chat with us sometime.
2: Anytime, Steve. Thanks so much for what you do and uh, appreciate you having me on.